This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and a warm welcome to the show. I'm Jake Cantor. It's been a busy start to the year and we're here to pick the bones out of Channel 4's diversity plans, management moves at the newly christened Endemol Shine Group and two meaty Sky One commissions. Later in the show, we welcome back Top Gear executive producer Andy Wilman, and I'm sure you'll agree there's plenty to discuss. And finally, we'll hit the previews trail. Listen up for the verdict on Wolf Hall and BBC Three's new structured reality show, Southside Story. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. We're back at Maple Street Studios and I'm delighted to welcome two esteemed guests. On the first show of the year, we have Broadcast International Editor Peter White and Lemonade Money Creative Director Faraz Osman. Welcome, gents. Hello. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Really good, actually. We're um, in the process of moving offices, which is quite exciting. Um, so things are getting bigger and brighter for 2015 for us. What have you been watching over Christmas and uh, and the New Year? So uh, Mrs. Brown boys, no, not really. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's been a really good, really good Christmas actually. I think that there's some been some really interesting things. The film roster was really good and strong this year. I think Sky got a real coup getting Frozen so quickly during the hype, which has been great. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that this year is going to be really interesting. There's so many blockbuster movies coming out, so this Christmas. It's going to be interesting to see who gets what. I mean, there's a big bidding war on the go. Mm. And Pete, there was uh, a Sky Fortitude premiere yeah, this week. Uh, Fortitude was wonderful. Um, absolutely as good as uh, as they're making it out to be. It's, uh, it's, it looks beautiful. Um, some cracking uh, cracking actors in it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of intrigue. And it just looks like kind of this whodunit that I will be uh, sticking with. So I can't wait for more. There's a behind the scenes in uh, this week's issue of Broadcast. So if you want to learn more about the series, do pick up a copy. Uh, let's crack on with some proper news shall we diversity was back on the agenda this week after channel 4 set out a comprehensive plan for improving the way it represents british society both on and off screen the broadcaster will plow five million pounds into 30 initiatives not least new guidelines that mean producers must hit at least two diversity targets to secure a commission but with all the major broadcasters all pursuing different diversity strategies, has a picture emerged of an industry united in its aims, yet divided in its solutions? Faraz, what do you make of that point? Well, the schemes are as diverse as diversity itself, aren't they? <laughs> I, I think, look, it's amazing that all the broadcasters have got on board, have identified a problem and are doing what they can to solve that problem. Obviously, I think it'll be easier for everybody if they all got together and said the same thing, and then we can all know what we're going to be doing and move on like that. But, you know, the, this issue is so complicated and so convoluted that there's no way that you're going to get, like, one straight answer and, and one perfect solution either. Um, it would have been nice if the CDN kind of took the mantle and was the umbrella that put all of these around so you could, as a production company, be aware that this is what you're going to do and this is how it's going to work. But to be honest, I think the reality is is that all broadcasters are sending out a really clear signal that they want diversity both on screen and off screen and production companies just should do whatever they can to make sure it works. We're in a better place now than we were this time last year, aren't we? Yeah, of course we are. I mean, And that's because everyone's got behind it and, and heard the call and, and rallied to, to do what they can to solve it. What I would say is, is that I'm still a little bit confused about what happens if targets aren't met or quotas aren't met or who gets reprimanded. There's there's some interesting things about broadcasters saying that they're going to do one thing, but they're going to give themselves six years to solve that problem, whereas production companies are going to solve it instantly. And uh, I, I just I'm curious to know what happens if. Um, production companies or broadcasters don't hit the targets that they're meant to and if they're just going to kind of go, well, we tried and we did our best, but we're back to square one. That's a really good point because 
the BBC and Channel 4 have you know, set themselves pretty stretching internal targets, but they've given themselves deadlines of 2017 and 2020. But the guidelines that Channel 4 has introduced for producers and the targets that they must hit are, are pretty much being rolled out now, aren't they? Yeah. Is that realistic? Uh, well, I mean, well, we we've managed it. I mean, this is a, this is a thirty three point three percent diverse podcast, which is uh, so it means that it's you know obviously I would say I think it's quite easy to hear. I'm from a diverse background, um, and uh, and we've worked with lots of different partners, both on screen and off screen, that are from diverse backgrounds as well. And we do it unconsciously. Now, it could be that we're lucky because we serve content to a younger audience, and therefore it's easier to get more diverse people in, involved. But I I kind of think that it's a case of you need to just, you know, pull your socks up, get it done and show your best endeavours and best efforts. And and as long as you're doing that and you're um, and you're aware of the issue, then hopefully everything else will slot into place. But I do think it is quite interesting that that there is a uh, there feels like the corporates feel like they've got they need more time to get it right. But they expect the indies to kind of get on with it yeah. today. Do you feel like you're going to be pulled in lots of different directions, given that each broadcaster has its own priorities and different ways of achieving them? Uh, I don't think so. I would never look at a form. I mean, like I said, it's a little bit tri- little bit tricky for me because, you know, obviously I'm from a BAME background or I'm Asian or I'm ethnic or whatever you want to call it. So obviously a, a, a lot of the broadcasters, if I'm involved in the production, that box is ticked. You know, I run a production company where, you know, James and I as, as, as partners, 50% of the team that's running the company are from a BAME background. And I think that probably suits and, and uh, meets all of the criteria across the board. So, you know, I'm lucky, I guess, inverted commas, I don't have to worry about it as much. I think that what, what we need to see now is, is two things. We need to know what happens and are people going to lose out? A good idea is going to be lost because they're not coming from a particular criteria, which I don't think is good for anybody, certainly not good for the industry. Um, and as well as that, are we going to see production companies up their game and pull out good, strong, diverse ideas that are worth having? The whole point of this and the whole argument that's being made is that audiences are being underrepresented and if you have a diverse production force or diverse characters on screen then that's better for ratings and it's better for business and the only way that that's going to work is if the ideas are as strong as they possibly can be so i i see it as a bit of a rallying call to kind of go well let's get some more new creative ideas that we haven't tried before out there and stop making excuses i would also like to see broadcasters put in some real tangible hires and uh, and and things that we can actually see and kind of go, that's working, that's not working, and make judgments about it. But I do think there's been a lot of finger pointing and a lot of name calling over the past few years. And I, I think that now the time for that has now passed. We all need to, as an industry, buck up and do what we can to get some good, strong ideas out there. OK. For more detail on the broadcaster's plans, find your copy of Broadcast this week. Uh, up next, fallout from Endemol, Shine and Core Media's mega merger has been steady since the turn of the year, with last week bringing news that Jane Featherston is to depart QDOT after 15 years. The prolific drama producer will step down in May and take the rest of the year off to, in her words, empty my mind for a few months and refill it with the world around me. As for Kudos, the powerhouse behind Broadchurch and Spooks, well, there's no rush to find Featherston's successor. Chief Operating Officer Dan Isaacs will help shape the company's future with his new bosses Sophie Turner-Lang and Tim Hinks. Uh, Pete, judging by the celebration of uh, Jane's work in this week's issue... 
this is going to be quite a big gap, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge blow for Kudos. Um, she is arguably one of the uh, the most prolific uh, producers in the UK in terms of drama. So they're going to have a, a, a real uh, struggle to, to find her replacement. And it sounds like they're not really planning to either. Um, apparently there's a, a team of exec producers that are going to uh, work on for the next few months. Um, and as you say, there's Sophie Turner-Lang and Tim Hinks. There, there's talk of how they're going to restructure. So we're not really going to find out what their kudos are going to do in particular until we sort of find out a little bit more about the plans for, for the group and the UK as a whole. Details sort of uh, her last hurrah in this week's issue. Tell us about some of the things that she'll be working on before she leaves. Yeah, I felt like I was writing a obituary, even though she's only. only <laughs> there was a, there was a slight danger of that at some at some points where we we're having like these. Glorious quotes from the likes of Ben Stevenson and Anne Mensa. Exactly, yeah. This sort of strange obit uh, that she's only going away for nine months and she'll probably resurface and uh, and start her own company or start something else. So it's, uh, it was a bit strange. But yeah, everyone was queuing up to, to say nice things about her. And um, as you can imagine, she's got a few things, a few sort of personal projects that she wants to finish. There's the Spooks movie that she's uh, she's exec producing. There's, a, there's The River, which is a crime drama, uh, cop drama written by Abby Morgan, um, which has got a sort of Scandi feel to it and there's Humans which is a, a co-pro between Channel 4 and AMC the channel behind Mad Men and Breaking Bad in the States it's a remake of a, a Swedish uh, sci-fi format where the robots uh, start to perhaps take over the world or in a, in a way that they start to get feelings and, and sort of looking at, at what they uh, what they might do to the humans that uh, they, they're serving AMC so, stepped in for Xbox didn't they yeah so AMC is the is the channel that took over from Xbox after, after Microsoft decided not to move into original programs programming. It was a, a like-for-like like replacement there. I think uh, in terms of the channel, it'll be uh, probably quite healthy. And there's also Flowers, which is a comedy pilot for Channel 4. Um, it's got Olivia Coleman, who Jane probably knows quite well from Broadchurch, and Julian Barrett from The Mighty Boosh. Um, it's uh, a sort of romantic comedy gone wrong, uh, this married couple that's struggling, and she's a, a, an art teacher and he's a, a musician, and it's all about how they... Um, they're sort of coping in their latest styles of, uh, of marriage. And amid all of this, Henrietta Conrad is, has gone as well. Yeah, Henrietta's departure was slightly uh, less of a surprise. She hasn't really been involved in the in the last twelve months. There was a restructure this time last year. But yeah, she's she's eventually she's finally said she's she's leaving and, and she's going to go produce Red Nose Day USA with Richard Curtis. Um, so that's what she's going to be doing. So yeah, there's a wholesale changes and 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 they've actually announced that the Lucas Church and Richard Johnson are going to be running the the UK company. So that will impact the likes of Tiger Aspect and Dragonfly and those those indies. Um, so that will shake out over over the next few months and it feels very much like uh, Endemol takeover rather than a, a merger if you look at who's on the top table. Yeah, tell us about that because I mean the, the, these are the final bits of the Endemol Shrine Group jigsaw sort of coming together, aren't they? Yes, exactly. Sophie's been putting together that team with Tim Hinks um, over the last last few uh, few weeks and months. Um, the only senior Shine executive at the top table is Gary Carter, uh, the mercurial uh, figure who's going to be a sort of in charge of international operations alongside alongside Martha Brass from um, Endemol. So yeah, it really is. If you look at who's given that Tim Robinson as well, the Shine COO is the Parted as well, so it's very much uh, an Endemol um, group rather than too many Shine executives. So if we, if we had a scorecard, uh, Endemol execs would be winning quite comfortably. I think we're looking seven-one here. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a bit of a trance, uh, yeah, at the moment. All right, moving on. Uh, finally, this episode, it's Commission of the Fortnight. 
and we're heading over to Ossley for a brace of Sky One treats. Uh, the pay TV channel has commissioned working title television and Big Balls Films to make the brilliantly titled comedy drama Apocalypse Slough. No prizes for guessing what that's about. Also this week, it emerged that Sky One is working with Imaginarium Studios, the indie owned by Lord of the Rings star Andy Serkis, to remake kids' classic Fungus the Bogeyman. Pete, tell us more. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Fungus the Bogeyman. I mean, everyone's uh, one of everyone's favourite kids, uh, kids' classics. Um, it looks really good in terms of the idea of who they've got behind it. I, I was watching some of the uh, the old BBC version, which came out just about 10 years ago, and some of the animation looks a bit shoddy now. So hopefully the uh, the animation on that, it's a mix of, of animation. It's and, not and that animation. long ago, though, really, is it? I mean, no. I, I was looking at that, that Martin, previous effort. Martin Clunes. Martin Clunes, Faye Whipley. Yeah, not yeah. that long ago. But yeah, if you look, you can understand why they've redone it in terms of the technology and you can imagine with the the two companies the visual effects companies behind this that it's going to look stunning or that's certainly the idea because fungus the bogeyman uh, needs needs to look quite creepy and uh, as he's uh, as he's sort of uh, trying to spook the dry cleaners and then apocalypse slough there's a there's a hint of um wrong man's about this the sort of action comedy as you said it, it does what it says on the tin but adam mcdonald really seems like his first two commissions this year has has, has done a good job that's a working title to television um, series it's one of their one of their biggest uh, yet it's a 10 parter and it's got a sort of end of the world feel about it uh, how all of these strange characters get together in slough to uh, to discover that uh, the world is ending so um, both of these uh, both of these point to, to good things for Adam's uh, channel in the next yeah, 12 months and you know healthy commissions as well it shows that sky is still committed to yeah, original programming, which is encouraging, I guess, for producers. Yes, exactly. Sky, uh, Sky loves to say how much they're investing in uh, original programming. And this does suggest that there's uh, there's no signs of that slowing down. And Adam got full creative control. Do we think? Um, Yeah, I think think he's grown into that. If you look at, uh, certainly in the last six months, the channel's felt a little bit more like his, um, and it does feel that he's sort of taking taking the reins a little bit. You can imagine Stuart's probably off busy doing uh, doing other things, so this does feel very much like Adam's uh, Adam's baby. Brilliant. Thanks, Pete. That's your news for this episode. My thanks to Pete and Faraz. Up next, we welcome back Top Gear executive producer Andy Wilman. Andy was last on Talking TV nearly 12 months ago, and Top Gear has scarcely been out of the headlines since. The BBC Two motoring show was censored by Ofcom for using an Asian racial slur, while host Jeremy Clarkson nearly lost his job after a video of him apparently muttering the N-word was leaked to the mirror. Then there was a trip to Argentina in September, where the number plates on Clarkson's Porsche angered locals who felt it referenced the Falklands War. Many shows would not survive this sequence of controversies, but Top Gear is not many shows. It appears to wear public outcry well. Indeed, Top Gear was comfortably BBC Two's highest rated programme of 2014. It also healthily topped the iPlayer Christmas charts, and all the signs are that this will continue for its 22nd series later this month. But before we talk about the future, here's the Top Gear crew making a hasty exit from Argentina in the Patagonia special. Uh, and before we bring in Andy, uh, just a word of warning that there's some strong language and some potentially offensive terms in the interview. The truck blocking the right-hand lane. It's too slow. That's a deliberate f***ing truck just put there. They're coming out. <gasps> the first couple of hits were from eggs. But then... The rock started. 
Give me the thing on this side. Uh, welcome, Andy. Yeah, welcome. Uh, baptism of fire there. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty ser- serious on the audio. How serious was it at the time? Being hit by the stones was not the scariest moment because you just think, I've got to get through that. And your brain has got no time to do anything but that. But the scariest element, I think, I think everyone there will probably agree with me, is the fact that it was so organised. And the fact that you had no control at those points. You know, you had these, the motorbikes and the cars coming around and filming us and then buggering off to the next point. You think, shit, this is not just some piss up on a Friday night where they're going, let's lob some bricks at some English. It was like... You were, you were there during this, were you? I was. I yeah. was driving one of the vehicles that you see getting hit. When you had control of your own destiny... That was not so bad. When we said, right, we're gonna, we're not going to go into Rio Grande, the next big town. We're going to bugger off across country and across the river. You sort of start thinking, right, I've got some control. I can do something. I can do something. In the UK, obviously, there's a massive disconnect here between I... what was being reported and you know, what was actually happening out there. Mm. I mean, the feeling was, to a certain extent, that you brought this upon yourself. Well, I'm sure people do think that. Do, do, do you, what would you say to that argument? No, well, we didn't because the number plate, and I'm actually... I know, I mean, you've you've blogged about this in some detail. Yeah, the number plates were a coincidence. As Jeremy has said, he's given up trying to convince people because people will <laughs> go, that's what Top Gear do. Personally, I am bored shitless now of... Of talking about it. I'd say what I'm bored of is everyone's a pub critic. So everyone's response is, oh, come on, you must have done, oh, come on. So I'm sort of saying, all right, now shut up now. Get your evidence together. I've put my argument out there. Stop sitting around going, ah, come on. Prove it. Prove it the other way. Do, do you see why people feel that way? Because, I mean, Top Gear yes. is, is quite a knowing show, isn't it? You have knowing humour. There yes. are in-jokes. completely see it. I completely see that people would go, that's the sort of thing they would have done. Get that. The problem is we didn't because what I'm not going to do is jeopardise a whole show and wind up a load of veterans down there. You know, our specials are biggest thing. I'm not going to wind them up for a joke about on a number plate about a war that happened 30 years ago. That's bollocks that I would do that. I mean, the, the Argentinian ambassador feels pretty strongly about it, doesn't she? Do you expect a, a BBC Trust investigation now? No. Um, they, they can investigate. BBC love investigating things, so that's fine. But they're not going to find anything because, like I say, it was a coincidence. The ambassador, she'll have seen it on TV. She has every right to protect her country's good name. But she really now... Needs to have a good think about the accusations she's throwing around, I think, because she likewise uh, is saying, of course we did that, look at their past, but actually she's the ambassador, she's got to stop, and just because she's called your excellency, it doesn't mean her opinion is any better than anybody else's, is what I feel. Do you think the Top Gear gets enough support from the BBC itself when you're under fire? Does the BBC give us enough support when we're under fire? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes no because they... What the BBC like about Top Gear is is when it's naughty, but it's all under control naughty, that's all good. Mm. The trouble is, if your show is a bit wayward and naughty, there's an attitude within it. 
sometimes it's going to, as we say, we walk a tightrope most of the time. Sometimes we're going to fall off it. And if you do, I think that's when the BBC are not a fan of their reaction when you walk off because they're sort of like, can you be naughty between the hours of? Can you be naughty under these conditions? So sometimes I feel they don't trust us at heart. Mm. And actually, apart from the very odd occasion, well, we can be trusted. Top Gear deserves trust. Top Gear deserves trust. Well, if you looked at our track record and what we have to do, we've been going for 22 series. We're supposed to walk this tightrope. I think we've had, I don't know how many upheld complaints and Ofcom things, but it's it's less than 20 in all that time. Now, you can't do what we do and get those few upheld complaints without, A, actually having a good, respectful working relationship with editorial policy, who are, at the BBC, quite brilliant, I think. There's two people in particular who are totally brilliant, David and Sue. You can't achieve that kind of record if the show itself isn't quite smart about what it's doing. Otherwise, it would be literally a car crash day after day after day because we wouldn't be thinking about what we're doing. So I'd argue, yeah, we can be trusted. I really would because we are... Our track record shows that. When we go off the tightrope, there'll be a reason. Sometimes I would screw up. Did you go off the tightrope too much last year? Well, you pick and you throw the examples at me, and we'll talk them through. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I mean, the Jeremy Clarkson was outside of your control. The the Which the, one? The, the the mirror story, but the the slope example. Yeah, which I was, got that wrong. Which was criticised by I got film. that wrong. I got I got that wrong because, like I said at the time, I thought it was a sort of commando mag John Wayne film type sort of bit of movie slang. I didn't realise that it would be offensive in a bigger way. So I wouldn't have done that if I'd have known that because it isn't worth... But I think people think we can just sit there and soak up the aggro that comes with it and go, oh, 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 we're in trouble again. But that takes, you know, the amount of grief that you get back on that. Actually, I've got a lot of work to do. So in proportion, I'm not going to soak that up. So that was my screw-up because I didn't suss the word out, I didn't check it enough and therefore didn't refer it. And if I'd have done that, then we would have got somewhere and it wouldn't have happened. So I admittedly, you know, I took that. I got a warning for it and I got sent on a course. That was really interesting about editorial something or other. So I've done my bit there. Will that change the way you approach the show in the future? If we're, we're going to start to look ahead at, at what the what the future brings to Top Gear now? No, it won't, because it was what I would do is, like I say, you, you can never stop improving. You can never stop checking. Now, with the slope thing, I was very upset that I didn't... I kind of messed editorial policy around. I didn't refer it to them. I, I didn't... Because I, I knew it was a sort of joke, but I didn't think it was a bad word. Everyone gets sort of egg on their faces, and that was my fault. All I would say that I learned from that is to check more and really have a good think about editorial policy get a red face as well, if that happens. And I wouldn't want to do that because, as I've just said, they are brilliant people. If I've got criticism of the BBC, sometimes they worry about the fact that you would get complaints and that what the Daily Mail's going to say. Nobody really cares what the Daily Mail says. I, We certainly don't, or the Mirror. But 
editorial policy understand that you're going to get complaints. It's just whether you can defend them or not. That's what that's what the job's about, and they're very good at that. But if you can't, you can't defend the indefensible, though. Is, is that Which what you're saying? Which would be what? I, I mean, you're saying you made a mistake on the slope thing. Yes. So that yes. was tough to defend. Well, no, it wasn't defendable because mm. defensible. It wasn't <laughs> defensible because I had to put my hand up and go. I copped up there. Yeah. You know, I knew there was a joke. I thought the word was of a lower level than it appeared to be. But yeah, I've, you know, like I say, I put my hand up on that one. The, the interesting thing about Top Gear is no matter what sort of storm you find yourself in, the, the show's popularity is completely, you know, completely endures. I mean, they, the Patagonia special got more than 7.3 million viewers, uh, beating your Burma special. Yes, everyone's uh, waiting to see a brick come through the window. <laughs> it just keeps motoring on, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Does public outcry just not, do you do you feel that you're insulated from that when it comes to your fans? Not, and not your in a no, heavens no, not in an arrogant way because what is we're much more worried about somebody going, I was bored watching that than somebody going, I was outraged watching that. No, we're not insulated because we're aware that we're a bit in uncharted waters. There are shows that have been going longer than us and are still epic, like uh, Have I Got News or what have you, but we're series twenty two with a show that constantly does new things in each series. So we're not a very fixed format. Now, that I think that's the curse and the blessing. We're still going because we'll do different things or go to different places. Hey, they'll still involve cars. They'll still involve fast driving. They'll still involve grown men falling over in some way or another. But there is more freshness to the material than some other format shows. So that keeps us going. And I think also those three guys are still happy to get out of bed, go and talk bollocks in their cars and do their things. You know, they're still they're still very happy. You watch them in Patagonia just sitting around talking and blah, 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 sitting there eating beaver on their campsite. They're, who wouldn't love that? Who wouldn't love getting off that ferry and trying to get across that beach? You know, it's a great thing to do. So they're still fired up. And that still comes across. Is the appetite there? Yeah. From or from the whole team. How long do you see the the show continuing for? Well, is the appetite there from the whole team? We're, we're knackered after last year because last year was a horrible year. I think it was a what did the Queen say? Anas horribilis. I think it was. Um, so, but now we're going to go Top on. Top gears, Anas horribilis. Yeah. <laughs> but next, ne- now we're going to go on air. So we just want to crack on. And then we'll see if we've still got an audience because obviously you don't know. You know, I don't know because people watch Patagonia if we've still got an audience because people wanted to watch some real reality TV for the last 15 <laughs> minutes. So, no, the appetite's still there. We're, we're tired. We're all a bit knackered. Although we've been off air, we've been working hard getting these shows together. And now there's a, you know, the usual rush to get it all to air. But I'd give this series 8 out of 10 that's coming. Eight out of ten. Um, eight out of ten. I'd give it eight out of ten. First show's good. Second show's good. What? what tell us about some good. of the things you've got coming up. Well, first show we had um, a few years ago. We did this race across London, public transport, river. Since then, we thought we've also built our, our hover van, which was the van and hovercraft that we tried out. Now they have a variation of that in Saint Petersburg. So we thought we'll do a sequel to that race, but this time with the hover van type device with one so, that, that properly <laughs> properly proper, working yeah, no no real people have built no it's not the sort of <laughs> crap that we've built it's actually proper people have built this 
this is like, it's got larder engines, it's top draw. So Jeremy's on that, Stig's on Russian public transport, and James is in a Renault Twizy, which is that tiny, tiny city car, and Rich is on his bicycle. So it's a sequel in that the hover van is in, but it's a fucking good film, actually. I've been watching it. Yeah, we just got it finished this week. Everyone's giving it their all, you know, and uh, St. Petersburg looks marvellous. You're off to Australia as well, aren't you? We've been, we're back, we're done. I'm cutting that now. I was cutting that last night. What we did there was the Northern Territories. We've never been. And the Northern Territories is the most hirsute, manly bit of Australia. So... We wanted to do a test of some of these luxury coupes, like Bentley Grand Continental, you know. So this is new cars instead of some of the the beat-up vehicles that you used Yeah, so it's not your, here's 500 quid, buy a shitter, Mm. and then (laughs) drive it in a river. That's the point, actually. We go, you know, we do that with these cars that are cost a grand and constantly amaze ourselves at what they can do. But there's an argument that those cars are simple and therefore will survive. So we thought, well, let's take three top end rammed with electronics and traction controls and engine management systems and la 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 out there and put them through the kind of hell that we would do so we got a road trip through the northern territories and they're like racing through those massive open cast mines pit things camping in the outback cattle herding who knew you could cattle herd with a bentley you normally need four by fours and helicopters to cattle herd. We've got to wrap it up, unfortunately. But I just want to ask you. Yeah, I know. I've kept you talking, but just just one one more question. I mean, sure. you say you've still got the appetite. Mm. We spoke last last year when you were last on the show that yes. um, you know, you were beginning to have conversations with the BBC about a new deal. Is that is that going to happen? Are you going to sign a new deal this year? We're still having those conversations. I think when we met last year, had it been a horrible year or not? Had it begun yet, the horrible year, or was it before? It was, I can't it was just before it all kicked off, I think. It was yeah. right, it was February. No, we're still talking to them. We're still talking to them. And like I say, our appetite's still there. I would ho- hope and think we're continuing. Are both parties willing? Are the BBC making the right noises mm-hmm. about keeping you on board? Yeah, they're willing. Because the show is working, and it's still a good thing to have in the mix. We're still a it- valuable part of that equation. So... Um, I would hope so. So you might not always have the full support of the BBC, but they fully support Tom. Yeah, but I love as, the BBC. We love the BBC. The notion and principle of the BBC is actually a brilliant place to be in the Rethian way, you know, and the fact that we have no commercial pressures, etc. So it's a wonderful place to make it. I could do with a bit less telling off, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but the BBC, nothing wrong with that. Fantastic. Well, look, we appreciate you coming in again. No worries. Uh, the new series of Top Gear gets underway yes. on the 25th of January at 8pm yes. on BBC Two. Ed Sheeran's on. <laughs> Welcome back. Faraz has left the building, but slumped with me on the talking TV sofa is Peter White for our third and final act. Uh, yes, it's previews time. First up is BBC Two's adaptation of Hilary Mantel's blockbuster Booker Prize winning novel Wolf Hall. Produced by Company Pictures, the series centres on Oliver Cromwell's rise to become Henry VIII's chief advisor. It stars Mark Rylance as Cromwell and Damien Lewis as the king. Here's an embattled Cardinal Wolsey getting to know Cromwell in the first of six episodes. So, Master Cromwell, William Popely tells me I might find a use for you. 
a man of many talents, he says. A remarkable memory. There's a technique, my lord. I learned it in Italy. How long were you abroad? Twelve years. Where are you from? Putney. Left when I was a boy. Your father? Blacksmith. Ah, at last! A man born in a more lowly state than myself. <laughs> Pete, what do you make of this? You, you weren't massively sold, judging by your body language. <laughs> no, no, I meant to say how wonderful it is and how the BBC's put a, put a new spin on the period. Drop. How can you not like Jonathan Price and, and uh, uh, Mark Rylance duking it out? It just feels hammy and slow. And, and I, ch- I watched that episode. It took me ages to watch that episode. Perhaps I don't just like those period dramas or perhaps I just think this one is, is not particularly well done. But uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly no Game of Thrones. I, I quite like the fact that it's more restrained and uh, very different to the flavour of period drama that we're used to. We're used to these sort of opulent Downton Abbey style period dramas and this felt taut and uh, realistic. This is exactly what I think BBC period drama has always been. In terms of? Just looks like it, it sounds like it, um, it feels like it. Um, uh, the the pace of of this show uh, just I uh, couldn't deal with. Do you do you think it's going to be successful for BBC Two? Yeah, I think it'll be a huge hit. I think uh, obviously the book's very uh, very popular. I think it'll be a be a smash, and and everyone will be looking forward to seeing Damien Lewis uh, again. Given uh, given the last time people would have seen him as in uh, as Brody in season three of Homeland, which uh, which people probably need to forget quite quickly. So yeah, I think it'll be a, a, a massive hit. What did you make of Damien? I mean, he's not in the first episode very much. No, he just pops up at the end, doesn't he? As uh, as Henry VIII. Um, you can't really tell. I only watched that first. First, first hour, he, he doesn't do a lot. I think he goes off to play uh, play golf or something. <laughs> I, I I thought he sort of stole the show in a, in a in a way. I mean, he was only in it for a few minutes, but um, he was very watchable. It'll be interesting whether I stick with it, but I think his character... It'll it doesn't be... sound like you're going to stick with it. No, I probably won't. I probably won't. <laughs> but, uh, but you can tell me whether he gets any better. They're, they've clearly approached it in a different way to The White Queen, which is obviously made by company pictures as well. The publicity has almost been self-generating because, because of the people in the show and uh, because of the book. Uh, the newspapers, particularly uh, some of the broadsheets that have absolutely loved it. I mean, it's on the front of the Times yeah. uh, today. They're treating it differently. I mean, it is different to The White Queen. I mean, uh, I mean, that was big, glitzy. They had a huge premiere for it where Tony Hall turned up and, and Henry, they're just not doing that this time with White No, Queen. and Henry VIII's unlikely to pull out a mobile phone in this version of, uh, of this, so completely differently to The, uh, the White Queen. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Wolf Hall begins on the 21st of January at 9pm on BBC Two. Lastly this week, we flick over to BBC Three for South Side Story a musical structured reality show that takes as many pointers from TOWIE as it does Glee, showcasing the lives of a diverse group of Brixton youths. It follows their friendships, loves and lusts between bursts of song and dance. The show is produced by Knickerbocker Glory, which is run by the creative brains behind Pineapple Dance Studios. Here's a taste of the first episode as DJ Yinka is joined by a friend in the studio. Whatever you do, make sure you keep it locked to rinse. I come to the end of the show. I've been Yinka. I'll be back bright and early tomorrow morning. I'll see you then. Hey. Hello. All right. <laughs> you all right? Yeah, I'm right. How'd the show go? It was good. It was yeah. wicked. Um, I've been playing like, sad songs recently. Oh, so. stop. <laughs> Why are you playing sad songs for? Because I'm over men. Like, I'm literally, I'm done. Cool. I went on a weird date the other day. No. He took me life drawing. What kind of life drawing, though? Like a naked woman. And he was just staring at me the whole time. 
Did you see his drawing? Yeah. Yeah. How detailed was it? He had concentrated on yeah. certain areas. It was okay. it was all a bit creepy. I don't know how he thought that was romantic, but considering that, I've I've given up. What are you doing tonight? Nothing. I'm taking you out. No. Girls' night. Just literally, you, me, we'll just like drink and like and no men and no men. Was this uh, was this floating your boat? Did it did it keep you locked to rinse? I mean, yeah, locked to rinse. Yeah, I certainly uh, watched all of it. Thirty minutes was was better than the hour. Um, it's made in Chelsea for an urban audience. It uh, it felt very staged. Um, I like the idea. I think it's a neat neat concept, and obviously, it's good that uh, that the BBC is doing something for this uh, for this audience. I, I do just wonder whether the people that it's aimed at will think it's edgy enough. It. Uh, I'm not. See, sure. that's the question that kept popping up in my mind. Will the people featured in this show, the types of people featured in this show, watch this show? I, I don't think they will. I don't think it represents them particularly. If you looked at the musical interludes, um, the, the the songs that they're singing, it, you know, they've got a John Newman track that opens the the sort of first musical number, and and you know, John Newman, whatever you think of him, isn't that audience isn't necessarily um, going to bring in the people that uh, that perhaps they're looking to bring in. But yeah, you know, it, it's well made if you like that type of towery and, and made in Chelsea, and and the, the characters themselves are, are are relatively interesting. There's a couple of people in there that uh, that are watchable, but whether that will necessarily um, keep those people that it's intended to, for interested, I don't know. Uh, we were talking about diversity at the top of the show, uh, but just before Faraz left, uh, we got his thoughts on South Side Story. Look, I, I really credit Knickerbocker Glory for doing what they can to create a new format and something exciting. I mean, Pineapple Dance Studios was was genuinely really innovative, and I felt like you were seeing something new and different on screen. I don't think that this quite works. Um, I, I'll be interested to know how the audience react to it. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit worried that it's going on BBC Three, and this may be another show that people point out and go, "Look, it doesn't work. That's not how you men represent the audience." There are an enormous amount of cliches in it. I actually, if I'm honest, I kind of watched the first five minutes thinking that it was a big setup to a gag about cliches in in um, South London and how. The, like how how the black community in South London operate, and I, I thought there's going to be a big gag and reveal at the end of it. And then when people started singing and dancing, I was like, "There's, there's got to be something behind this," and, and it never came. And so I don't know what the logic behind it is, and I'm surprised that it went to pilot and then went to series. But I'm not expecting great things, if I'm honest. This is genuinely diverse, isn't yes. it? There's one white face in the whole show, yes. and I can't think of many. Uh, British TV shows that are like that. Yeah, exactly. So, so great for that, and actually, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel necessarily um, like they're doing it just to, to to sort of tick a box. It, it genuinely feels like they've they've created this this world um, that, that that is genuinely diverse. Um, but whether that um, necessarily makes for for good TV or, or you know TV that rates, I don't know. And what about the musical elements? Well, you know, it's not the rap battle. I yeah. thought that was a little bit cliched. Yeah, the the rap battle is uh, is incredibly cliched, and and it, you know, it's not really my thing. There weren't any uh, Slayer numbers in there for me, but um, no, I don't know. I, I think that the music isn't necessarily. I don't think a Pharrell track from from a year and a half ago is necessarily gonna gonna keep this audience uh, interested. I don't think a John Newman song is gonna keep. You know, you sort of half expect Ed Sheeran to pop up. I sort of agree with a lot of that, but I, I feel it should be applauded for its ambition and for trying something new. Uh, the guys at Knickerbocker Glory try to do things a little bit differently. Whether that always chimes with an audience, I, I don't know. I mean, they did that sort of 
half reality, half comedy scripted sketch show yeah. uh, last year, Boomtown. Yeah. And that probably didn't work quite as well as BBC Three would have hoped. But, it, you know, it, BBC Three there is there to take risks, isn't it? Hats off to them, yeah. It's the, it's the perfect type of show that BBC Three should be doing. And, uh, you know, will it continue to do that if it moves online? I, I hope so, because you'd think that uh, the digital, digital world would provide it with the platform to do things differently. You'd hope it would make it easier for them to take those risks. You'd hope that they would be able to do more of that and feel less like they've just only got a certain amount of shelf space. Thanks, Pete. The curtain comes up on Southside Story on the 26th of January at 9.30pm on BBC Three. And that's all we've got time for this episode. Many thanks to all my guests, Andy Woolman, Peter White and Faraz Osman. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks for another dose of TV talk. But until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.